بنام زندگی رها شبیم ز طوق بندگی شب Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And we have a really awesome guest on. Um, can you introduce yourself? Thank you so much for being here. Of course. Um, my name is Aitak Dibavar. I am an Iranian lawyer in exile. Um, and I'm also a professor of gender and social justice at McMaster University. I do work on queer and um, decolonial feminist perspectives. Um, just also a quick note. Um, I would like to start any kind of conversations that pertains to social justice also. And also acknowledging the relationship to the lands and where we're standing. So on the, for the past 12 years since I've been in exile, I've been living, studying, um, learning and teaching on the lands of Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas of New Credit, and Huram Wendat people. And I'm eternally grateful for the loving care that have generationally gone into the lands that I've been living and working on. Thank you. Um, and that. we are on the Lenape um, land on our end. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, we wanted to dedicate this episode to talking about, you know, what's happening in Iran. And um, yeah, and Aitak just really graciously um, is dedicating her time to this, um, for this episode. I wanted, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to you maybe to give a overall overview of what's been happening in Iran. Right, and absolutely. And, and I also want to say thank you so much for providing um, me, us, with this platform to talk about this um, because um, I do feel like as many platforms as we can to amplify the voices from Iran, the voice of women and queer people from Iran, it would be, um, it would be, uh, it would be amazing. Yeah. Um, so just to give a um, background and the context to what's happening. So on September 16, um, the so-called morality police, quote-unquote, in Iran, um, which is tasked with regulating women's hijab and outfits in public, arrested a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Gina Amini, so known as Masa Amini. And I think there's also a context around why Masa and not Gina. Maybe we can delve into later. But um, arrested Gina Amini in Tehran with the accusation that her hijab is not up to standard. Um, a few hours later, her family was involved in, in, uh, in um, informed that uh, she's in a coma in a hospital. And a few days after that, she passed away. So on Friday, she was declared brain dead and um, eventually passed away. And the murder of Amini was uh, obviously the result of a violent arrest. Um, the process of arresting and disciplining women in Iran can often be very violent and as someone who has lived in Iran and um, I have um, first account witnessed or experienced how violent this arrest can be but also over the past few years this has been exacerbated with the presidency of Raisi and there are so many videos uh, of these there was arrests that people are banging a woman's head on the van so um, these arrests are quite violent. So it is. it was not surprising for anyone that unfortunately someone would pass away because of this or been killed because of this. Um, Gina's murder seemed to be the kind of last drop in the very painful um, 
ocean that Iranians are currently drowning, the version of economic sanctions, a government so desperate that is tightening its grip around people, and Iranian women are taking the brunt of a sanction-ridden violent state. So since the death of um, Gina, protests have erupted in most of the cities. There are, I think, to this day, 120 cities are involved in the protests, protests in Iran. And women are the leader of these movements. The picture and videos of, uh, that we are receiving that are flooding the internet with the hashtag Iran protests or Operation Iran or um, with the protests of the names of the people who have, have been killed, showing us uh, the way that police brutally suppressing the protesters, um, teenage girls and young women, university students, uh, among many other Iranian who have been joining these protests and um, they have been raising grievance against the Iranian state. Um, we know that Iranian state to kind of suppress the voices have been either completely banned or limited internet. So we have less and less access to actually what is going on over the last seven weeks uh, in Iran. But um, we know that this is a very conservative estimate that 250 people have been killed. 34 of them are children. And 13,000 people have been arrested. And their trials, their fake trials, have just started uh, the, the process. And so far, um, one person has been sentenced to death. Um, and this, again, this whole process of just um, trial running for a day or two, or sometimes even one hour, and then sentencing people to death or to life sentences is something that has been historically happening in Iran. It's nothing new. I think there's also worth mentioning that majority of the death also occurred in Kurdistan and Baluchistan provinces, two provinces with the most oppressed ethnic minorities. Yeah, so I think that kind of gave us an overview of what has been taking place in Iran uh, over the past seven weeks, as much as we can have access and understand it. Thank you. Um, you, you mentioned some context around the name Mahsa. Do you want to get into that? I, I actually yeah, didn't, I didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said, um, Gina is um, Kurdish. And in Iran, a lot of ethnic names, the names that are associated with ethnic minorities, be it Kurdish um, or, or um, Turkish or lower, there are certain names, if it's deeply associated with an ethnic minority as banned in Iran, or it's really hard to get them registered. Um, so one of the reasons that Gina was called Massa because her parents couldn't register her name Gina, but they, the parents named uh, call her with her Kurdish name Gina. And I think it's important to kind of emphasize that name's the name that her, her, her mother calls her. Yeah, I think um, Gina's Kurdish identity, even her Kurdish name, is one of the things that's kind of being left out of a lot of um, mo both mainstream media and popular discussions of what's going on. Um, what else do you think is either being left out or being misrepresented in international discussions right now? A few things come to my mind. I think in in in, in line of what you said in terms of Gina's Kurdish identity is being left out. It's also the slogan "Woman, Life, Freedom." Um, in in Farsi, Zen, Zendegi, Azadi uh, has its origin in actually a Kurdish slogan, "Jen, Jian, Azadi." Um, this is 
this is a slogan that has been um, that has been used by Kurdish resistant forces um, that have been that have been resisting against the state-sponsored forms of oppression, but also in the same way in their refusal of the socioeconomic structures within capitalism that oppresses Kurdish women. And I think very conveniently, we kind of uh, forget that, forget that part and that aspect of this, this slogan. And when I see Balenciaga putting Zan Zendegi Azadi in, in their Instagram page, I mean, there's, there's a tiny piece of me that says, oh yes, great platform. But then there's other big part of me that says, well, this slogan actually is against major corporations and capital. Like it has its roots in anti-capitalist struggles as well. And this is completely omitting that historical aspect of it. But also I feel like there are, there are, there are other things that are being left out um, and for pur purposefully. Um, part of it is when we see that mainstream media is representing what is going on in Iran. Oftentimes they're picking and choosing what they want to show and what they want to talk about uh, for the purpose of certain agendas. Um, and they are leaving out the historical processes that actually led us to be in the position that we are today. Um, there's no conversation about the, the role of American imperialism and meddling in, in the region uh, from the coup of 1953 to meddling in the Iranian revolution of 1979 to specifically targeting the leftist activists that were, were active during the 1979 revolution from, um, this is in archives actually, I've, um, I've recently read to giving the names and addresses of the leftist activists to even Iranian regime to to uh, to the to um, um, Iranian regime after the revolution, kind of to suppress the that um, the, the the leftist struggles in Iran um, to to very um, not specifically targeted, but it's the sanctions that actually broke the back of middle class and lower class people in Iran. Um, but also any other sort of conversations that had happened or uprising that had happened in Iran that had led to this movement. I don't think this moment in time is in the present is separate from any sort of historical uprising that has been that happened but haven't been covered with the mainstream media 2009. 2016, 2019, which was a specifically a working class uprising. Um, so to take this moment and kind of assume a separate moment in time and finally Iranian women or Iranian people are realizing that they are being oppressed. I think it's very ahistorical and it, it, it perpetuates a very willful amnesia um, on the side of the mainstream media. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of media and just coverage internationally, I noticed I went to the protest um, with a friend in New York and there was no no news outlets there, no one covering it. And I thought, you know, New York City, like a pro seeing a protest in New York City and yeah. coverage on that would have been so important for people even internationally to see that someone people care in yeah. uh, um, outside. How, is that something you've kind of observed happening, you know, like the lack of media coverage in general, internationally? Sadly, yes. Yeah. Um, I think there are, again, there are some news outlets better than the other ones, 
-hmm. but in general it took a very long time to even for certain medias that have platforms to recognize that there's something going on mm -hmm. um but even after that the coverage is very hand like cherry picked it's it doesn't or the people invited to talk come with a very specific agenda that are aligned with that mainstream uh, news outlet as well so i think what is being left is out is actually the voices from iran and what are they demanding what are what are what what do they want right i mean mm -hmm. as much as i have a lot of attachments to my home country and what's going on over there i also have been absent for the past 12 years um so mm -hmm. just to get the voices of the people who are inside who are actively putting their life on the line um to find people to amplify those voices and also yes get the coverage of the solidarity that is happening outside not just hand pick the solidarity that uh, looks like or aligns with our agenda but solidarity among among many solidarity yeah. from critical voices outside of the launch too yeah and yeah yeah and oh yeah sorry i was just gonna add i don't know if there's a safety thing too though and i'm realizing that i'm recognizing that you know um people at the protests in new york i wonder if there was any fear of showing you know having faces recorded and i mean i think that. that's true but i've never seen a news outlet care about that when it comes to protesters I, no. I would love that to be the reason, but I don't think I've ever. No, seen I it. know, no, but yeah. I'm thinking like yeah. from the protesters' perspective, I'm wondering like. I wish they were that yeah. ethical. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there's yeah. there's way more politics involved in that than just ethically mm -hmm. caring, but also people who go out here and show their faces very well know that their faces might be recorded, and it's yeah. not just. I think it's not the news media in, in the West that we are more scared of by showing our faces. It's a lot of people that come to take our pictures and, you know, um, use that to thicken our, the whatever documents that we have back home. It's just getting added on to that. Um, so I think it's, I don't, I don't think it's ethical consideration in that sense. I think it's at least on the part of the big mainstream medias. It's more so that what we can cover that kind of a, aligns to what we have been um what have been told or what is our agenda or the agenda of our big donors yeah that that tracks unfortunately um what do you think uh is the best way that people outside iran whether they have um, personal attachments to the country or not can be supportive allies to people who are protesting there yeah, um, I think there are two aspects for me for this question. One, one is towards and directed towards the Iranian diaspora that is outside, and one is to our non-Iranian allies. Um, for Iranian diaspora, um, sadly, um, wherever I mean, I shouldn't say it sadly because I, I've seen a lot of really. Um, strong solidarity among the Iranian outside that have been specifically pertaining to this uprising that has been that uh, and that has been really making me hopeful about the fact that we are getting more tolerant in 
hearing each other out and we are also making spaces for the minorities be it the ethnic or religious minorities but also the gender um and uh, the gender minorities um uh, to to kind of get a platform that they really lacked in previous conversations when it came to any sort of uprising in Iran. So I, I want to acknowledge that and I think that's making me very hopeful. But on the other side, I also feel like whenever there is a conversation around, oh, there might be there might be some sort of change, either regime change, or there's an uprising going on in Iran, we saw we see that there is um, a lot of voices, both conservative and very critical voices, Tend this take this tend to take this opportunity and make it about themselves, um, and and I do have grievance against that, um, and I, I think part of it has to do with um, we want to prove that we are right, and whatever we are thinking and assuming and wanting for Iran's future is 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 right. So people should listen to me, ITAC, or me. I don't know, Arazia or me, um, Nilufar, for example, right? So they are, um, they are, there are certain aspects to that. And I think um, critical voices often start raising a lot of grievance of, oh, you didn't listen to me. You've silenced me in the past. So this is my time to talk. And I take problem with that. And then there's a lot of conservative forces among the Iranian community who say, well, everyone shut up. Let me talk because I know for the Iranians better than they know for themselves. So this back and forth between this very conservative forces and very critical voices upsets me deeply because this is not your moment. This is not a moment to prove to everyone that you're right or that you know best for Iranian people or that you get to represent all Iranians. This is for us. This is a moment for us to listen, to deeply listen, make a platform, reach out to as many people as we can safely in Iran and make a platform for them if they want to participate or if they want to show their works of art or other works that they have done. But this is a moment for us to really humble, humble ourselves uh, just by the virtue of the fact that we are outside of Iran, we don't know any better for the people in Iran. So either people in Iran want regime change or not or anything that there is their demand. It's for us, um, we just need to listen at this point and also provide as much as we can a platform for those voices and engage very meaningfully with, um, with our actions, with their demands as well. Uh, but for the non-Iranians, I think um, my students had asked this question a lot, what can we do? And I said, this is one of the rarest moments and I do teach and talk about social activism and in relationship to the social media. And I think one of the things that I tell them is that this is one of the rarest moments that actually activism on social media counts. Um, it counts because we need platform. We need voices to get heard. We have political prisoners sitting in prison right now, and we don't know what is really happening to them because they're, they have either have um, no connection to their family or the world or, or um, the world outside. Um, therefore, just saying their names, putting their hashtags out, can actually save their lives. It's terrifying to think that their lives in the hands of social media accounts and advert and activism. But even uh, someone like Hossein Ronari, who is a, he was a political activist, has been active for since two thousand nine. Last time that he was released from prison, he's been told that the only reason he wasn't executed 
was because his name was tre was trending, and um, the Iranian government didn't want it to bring that that much attention yeah. exactly to itself. Yeah, I, we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about like mixed feelings about social media activism, and a lot of people roll their eyes at it. Sometimes people who don't roll their eyes at it just get very burnt out from mm -hmm. these platforms and also corporate censorship itself. Um, but I think it's also a different story when that's literally what the people in the country are asking you to make an Instagram post, right? Like it, it, it's a pretty clear demand that um, that we can do, right? Um, have, have you, um, I don't know, maybe this is a hard question to answer at this point. Um, but what what question what um issues have you have you encountered or have you been seeing any um, limitations of the platforms itself any censorship or algorithm issues um, kind of getting in the way of the social media branch of this movement? Um, I cannot speak to algorithm issues. I'm not very active. I mean, I since the <laughs> I've been I have been very active since. Um, the past like on the board with like seven weeks or so um so i i can't really speak to that but i do think that there are certain names that have are being amplified more than the others and this might be a limitation on part of um the the whose family has access to um internet and social media to get the information of their child that has been detained outside, for example, or their relatives that have been detained to outside, to outside everyone. So there is that. There are also limitation in terms of, um, I've seen some people posting using the accounts that are not necessarily saying either the whole truth, they are either using the whole the fragments of truth, or they are saying things in, in a tone that is very specific to certain agenda or certain organization in the diaspora. So there's, I think, limitation in terms of um, because this is happening so fast and people and non, even non-Iranian allies want to get their hands as, as much as, as much um, especially um, translated sources as possible, then oftentimes it's really hard to um, vet those sources to see um, what are they saying. So it might be that sort of limitation that is being offered um, through social media as well. But in terms of algorithm thing, I might not be the best person to answer this question. Fair enough. I think it also just takes a little bit longer to see trends there. Um, but are, are there particular sources that you think are like really good that people should be following and sharing? Um, yes and no. <laughs> I think majority of the sources outside Iran about what's happening in Iran are um, are bound by whomever is providing their money. I think that's just the reality of corporate capitalism. Um, I, what I do personally myself, I go through every single major source that are act they have money and try to get different fragments of truth from them and then try to make my own whole picture of what is happening but there are also some uh, grassroots one that i think it, it it is important one is called but some of them i think they're farsi so this this might be other than the videos on the picture this might be more relevant to actually farsi speaking um community but they are it's called fifteen thousand. 15,000, 1,500 words, uh, 1,500 
pictures. The second has been actually created since the 2019, the working class uprising. And it was, it had created to show the names and the pictures of the people, the 1500 people that were killed in, in the shortest span of three days during that uprising. Um, and now it has gained a lot of momentum and it's kind of um, has gained a lot of followers because people are tuning more to what's going on in Iran. So that's one of the sources that I often go to. Another one that is, I think, it might be most relevant to English-speaking um, allies uh, is the it's called Iranian Collective. Um, it takes its pictures and videos and sources from different sources, but it offers translation for them. Um, so th this is also one of the uh, one of the ones that I follow. There is another one called Boland Gu. Again, the translation is speaker, um, and the uh, and I think they um, they have been. Although majority of the things that they post are in Farsi, um, I I very much trust the sources and and where they get their information from, uh, so far. And um, what what else have come to my mind? Oh, there is also um, a, an account called Feminist for Gina, and they also have been very active in getting, especially the information about the um, gatherings outside of Iran. And these are the gatherings oftentimes organized by feminists and, and, and queer folks outside in diaspora. Um, so I, I do think that, again, some of the things that this uprising has done um, that perhaps was very hard to navigate in the uprisings before is the amount of space is still limited, but it's, but the amount of space um, that has has been created for uh, the conversations by um, women with a star and and queer folks outside. I think that nuance also isn't really being covered. I think we're seeing a lot that's very like cis centered feminism mm -hmm. which is obviously an important part but um i think feminist and queer issues are usually aligned right and absolutely i i, I don't know that i've seen as much about um wh what else is happening in those intersections in the movement absolutely i think um the feminist virginia um does a very good job in terms of um showing and 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 Bolangu to some extent as well uh, but they 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 uh, tend to show organize and also show and amplify these voices. Um, the one of the gatherings that I've attended was actually organized by feminist Georgina and through in different cities. I think they had a, they had a gathering. I'm not sure in which city in Turkey might be stumbled. They had a gathering in Beirut. Um, they had um. At a gathering here in Toronto that I've attended, but um, also in multiple cities around the world. And this was organized by, uh, by the critical um, queer um, um, feminists outside, um, outside of Iran. And they were amazing in first amplifying and giving platforms to the, um, to, to the folks who have been often are either erased or silenced in these movements, or their issues are pushed aside, right? The soggy rights violations, the, the sexual orientation and gender, gender um, identity right violations are often seem to come in, in as an amendment to whatever is happening. Whereas it, there is a direct line. Uh, I mean, you cannot really, you cannot really raise um, and or talk about oppression against women without addressing 
the oppression against queer folks because at the end of the day they are very much entangled to one another um but anyway they they've created this um and they have this uh, gathering in toronto um and uh, and, and um, someone who had directly called people in iran who were on the street and uh, they were the queer folks on the street in iran protesting and put their voices on the microphone so we could hear um their slogans and the and and um, it yeah and i think we need more of that yeah um this is a little like changing topics a little bit but um i so my background my family's from saudi arabia and f so for the past several years i've been very like tuned in to um the leftist even the leftist so-called allies um kind of spinning things to gloss over you know the atrocities that are happening because of the saudi government and i feel like there's kind of a it's kind of an effort among the leftist community to not be islamophobic but it's actually very harmful and so i'm wondering if you're seeing similar response from leftists about like all of this compensation yeah. almost out of fear of being like islamophobic or orientalist or like yeah itching towards interventionism or a lot of emotions <laughs> and i think it is i i don't know who says it but mm -hmm. i i think like i've heard it or maybe from my therapist at this point say so, um you um you get disappointed you get disappointed more at people that you expect more right mm -hmm. and i think that's yeah. why i have accumulated so much disappointment again um towards our um, leftist allies because that's i think at least the group of folks that i'm expecting a lot of nuance in the way that they see and observe but sadly it has been lacking um especially in and in, in both uh, the Demen or Swana region, Swana region, but also um, it, it has no, it, it also lacks nuance in other contexts as well. I think it's important to amplify. I think when it comes to the case of Iran specifically, I've seen some very limited accounts of engaging with the Iranian government, with the virtue of the enemy of enemy is my friend, where when a state stands kind of against American imperialism, and I'm defining standing up very loosely over here, right? Um, automatically becomes our, or the critical left or anti-imperial leftist friend. And sometimes in go it goes to the extent that uh, they tend to even omit any grievance or the census that uh, is being raised um, against the regime by the people inside of those countries. Uh, as um, as buying into the imperial narrative. So I've been in circles that I've been silenced or I've been asked rather than silenced, or do you think what you're saying can be used or misused or abused? And I'm like, do I think that? Yes. Do I have to not silence and censor myself because, because of it? I don't think so. Um, so I do feel like that um, leftists, that leftist circles that um, I've been part of and they, I consider them my allies um, 
have silenced a lot of very genuine, complicated and nuanced narratives um, that comes out of that region um, just by the virtue of the virtue that they can be co-opted by the neocon of the conservative forces. Um, I guess my grievance is that if we are always tuned to um, talk to the power, in this, in this case, the power being American imperialism or the Western imperialism, if all we do is always center the white imperial gaze in our conversations, then we might just as well be voiceless because everything we say and do is under the gaze of an imperial power. We always fear what can and cannot be co-opted. So imperialists and white supremacists, in my opinion, they will, they will take the fragments of whatever we say anyway, right? So instead of perhaps talking to them, maybe we can turn towards each other and talk to each other and see what, what do we have to offer? What do, uh, what do we want? What we genuinely imagine for our future? What is that we desire? Um, if we constantly are fearing of what is and cannot can and cannot be co-opted, I think we are very limited in our observation. And I think the other thing is, is the limitation of the, the framework in the critical left circles. Um, I do think the frameworks needs a little bit of adjusting and reframing. This was also evident in, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where many in the left refrained, refrained from criticizing Russia because it would perpetuate the American exceptionalism. Um, well, yes, but the thing is, um, we need to complicate a narr the narrative and, and rescue it from a very simplistic binary of America good, Russia evil, right? or vice versa. And there's one thing that to perpetuate and offer a very um, binary narrative of one thing bad, one thing good. And another thing is to actually complicate the story and say, yes, I mean, American imperialism terrible, Russia is reacting to something, but then Russia's also invading and killing other people. So can we not forget that? in these conversations. So this is kind of the extension of what is also happening in Iran as well. Whereas we are focused on American imperialism as we should be, and we shouldn't have taken our eyes from that. We also should look at the Iranian meddling in interventions in the region, not just killing the people inside Iran, but also the meddling that is happening in the region that is costing other people, other neighboring countries, their lives as well. So very binary, very um, simplistic, kind of accounts of, oh, one state just said no to US, anti-imperialist, great, we're gonna clap for it. It's, it's very reductionist and limited. I also doubt that, that this instinctual disattunement kind of to what is going on in the region is accidental. Um, sadly, I very well believe that there are people among critical left uh, that do benefit from these very simplistic binary of evil and good because it aligns with their agenda and their scholarship. And anything that might complicate this picture is dismissed. And, um, and here is what I do have to say to them. 
um, and it, that is that as much as U.S. imperialism kills people in Suwana region, dismissing Iran's legitimate Iranians' legitimate demands for regime change or calling it a color revolution, which I've seen in circles that it's been called, also kills people because it perpetuates Iranian regime's defense of itself against any criticism over the past four decades that any uprising in Iran is a foreign meddling and therefore the protesters are foreign agents and punishable even by death. Um, it was only a few days ago that um, Nilufar, uh, Nilufar Hamedi and Elohe Mohammadi, the two journalists that actually um, uh, broadcasted the news about Gina's death have been accused of being foreign agents in Iran. So um, yes, it is important to complicate a story so that our voices not get co-opted by the imperialist force in the West, but it's also important for us to reflect how our voices might also be co-opted by Iranian regime that is looking for an opportunity to kill the voices inside Iran as well. Yeah, I think it's it's, almost like sometimes it seems so silly how people can't acknowledge that there's like multiple imperialist forces can exist simultaneously yes <laughs> like sometimes there's, <laughs> sometimes there's like six bad guys in the story and sometimes the enemy of your enemy is also a just another enemy and number i mean yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah. Uh, i've seen that a lot like around also the protests in cuba about like protesters being CIA plants instead of legitimately just people who are protesting for better lives regardless of where you're placing this country ideologically. Right. Um, yeah, what, what would you, um, what about the set of people who are um, particularly concerned about um, criticizing forced hijab from a Western yeah. perspective? Um, and don't want to contribute to Islamophobia, especially if they're not uh, super attached to Iran or even the Swana region and yeah. might just come across as Islamophobic doing so. Yeah. I mean, among the, again, among the critical people, I think you do have a good chunk of practice with this when it comes to the occupied Palestine, right? Mm -hmm. People who shut down any sort of criticism against Israel as being anti-Semitic, um, for me, are in part the people who call um, any criticism against the Iranian regime or the concept of the, um, the, the policies about regulating women's bodies, right? Uh, as um, Islamophobic, um, reducing criticism against an institutionalized forms of religion to the religion itself is not just short-sighted it's dangerously limiting um because it's it creates an location for the systems of abusive power to escape say oh you cannot criticize us because we are um we, because there is um, Islamophobia exists or anti-Semitism exists in the West. Yes, absolutely, they do exist. But that doesn't mean that we cannot criticize institutionalized and nationalized forms of those religions. Uh, Iranian regime, like Islamic nationalism in general, like any sort of nationalistic projects, it operates on exclusionary forces. It excludes people that does not align to the unconformed with this idea of ideal citizenship, be it religious and ethnic minorities or women who does not want to comply 
with um, the with the with the with the policies that have been enforced by the state or to um, to gender minorities. So to to claim that um, criticizing Islamic regime or Islamic nationalism is equal as criticizing Islam, that for me is is um, is very short sighted. Mm-hmm. I think another part of it is. Um, has to do for me um, with regulating the conversations around regulating women's body. I mean, we are, as we should be, as we should be, and I want to emphasize that, are talking about regulating women's body in the West, including um, forceful removal of the job or the policies to ban the hijab. If we are doing that, then we should be very... Um, also actively and vocally talk about people who also in Iran that they don't want their bodies to be regulated. They don't want a state to tell them what to wear and what not to wear. They're revolting against mandatory hijab. They're revolting against a state that tells them um, what their bodies are and how, how their bodies should be expressed in, in public. That I think is exactly in part with the people who are um, who are also protesting against the ban of hijab, for example, in, in India or France or Quebec or um, Denmark, um, there is a big parallel between what's happening between them. So if um, if we are doing one, we should be we should be doing the other one too, because they are they are um, they're quite parallel to one another. Yeah, I think that, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah, um, exactly. Oh. Even though it's like different angles, it's both about just choice it's not about like hijab is good or bad yeah absolutely it, at the end of the day it's exactly as you said it's about choice and agency and do women feel that they have choice in what they do and how what do what do they wear um, um and also it's getting the hands of the state off people's bodies just don't just get your hands up. That's that's all. And if we agree with this statement, it should be easy to criticize um, mandatory job. Yeah. I think this also relates to what you were saying before about like, can something be co-opted by conservatives? Yeah, sure. Does that mean yeah. you should avoid saying it? No, because conservatives figure out a way to co-opt yeah. literally everything, right? Yeah. Like, could this be co-opted Absolutely. by Islamophobes or racists? Sure. But does yeah. that mean we're gonna wait around and wait for a thought that could not possibly be co-opted by yeah. anybody yeah. or something like, no. Exactly, I mean, there are both violence, right? I mean, yeah. yes, it can be co-opted and there is a real fear that it can translate into something violent against people here or people in the region. But also there's the other one also has a, a massive violence that we don't for yeah. people forget it's attached to it. These voices, they are literally dying on the street for us to hear their voices. Are we just going to simply ignore them? Isn't that violence? Is there anything else you'd like to give us some closing thoughts? Anything else you want people to consider? Sure. I think the last remark um, that I would have is about transnational feminist solidarity and how this is a, that, that oftentimes a lot of conversation about how can we build transnational feminist solidarity and what can be our um, joining moment or the moment that brings all of us together. And I think for me, we can we can definitely build transnational feminist solidarity around dismantling heteronormative patriarchy that is very much co-constituted in capitalism and other forms of oppression. 
that is tied with the notion, whole notion of productivity, ableism, classism, etc. Um, and we should be able to, as feminists, dream together about a world without heteronormative patriarchy. We should be able to converse through um, locations of respect, respect of difference, mm -hmm. and also care um, about our futurity, about what we dream and desire. This goes back to what I've mentioned in terms of talking to each other. We should be able to have a spaces to talk to each other, to dream about our future. And I think once we center the main goal of our collective struggles as dismantling heteronormative patriarchy, and we aim to achieve that by first constructing communities of care, I think quite frankly, we are dangerous. I mean, beautifully dangerous. Yes. I love that, beautifully dangerous. Yeah. That's our goal. Um, thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much for this was providing Incredible. this platform yeah. this is amazing this conversation a lot of weight has been lifted off my chest <laughs> Good. yeah me too just having having someone actually very informed um speak on this is it's so crucial and also um yeah is there any any online platform you would be comfortable with people engaging with you on um my instagram i think uh, it's called po poetics of silence um, is the one that I, um, for, for now I'm currently active. My website, I, I, it's just for information. I don't, I don't, I, I use it just for update on my scholarship, but the Poetics of Silence is the one that I'm active. Yeah. We've been enjoying following that one. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's been a really helpful resource actually. Yeah. Thank you again. Um, you all can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the queer Arabs. Yeah. And you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com and yeah, follow us on all of your favorite podcast apps. Bar Pachis, Bar Oye, Zan Zendegi, Ozodi. Bar Pachis, Bar Oye, Zan Zendegi, Ozodi.